Hi there. Welcome to Mountain Meister. I am your host, Ben Shank, and you are a Meister fan. That's somebody who listens to this podcast. Merry Christmas to those of you who are into that. It's December 25th, 2014. For those of you who aren't into that, hope you're having a great day. Before we throw it back to episode number 79 with Ronnie Dixon, a couple of quick things. First of all, we, along with every other podcast, just about every other podcast, we're offering you a free audiobook from audible.com. The difference between them and us is that if you sign up through us, we get commission on the free audiobook. So consider that on this day of giving, if you're into that. Also, just by chance, I was going to give you a book recommendation, and I realized that the movie that is playing off of this book is coming out today, I believe. It's called Unbroken. I can't imagine how terrible the movie's going to be in comparison to the book because the book is this unbelievable story of survival. And I just don't see how the the movie's going to be able to capture that emotion. But I'm going to see it anyway. Listen to the book, audible.com, free audiobook through us. Somebody else who has encountered adversity and surpassed it. Number 79, The Only Way to Look is Forward, with Ronnie Dixon, starts now. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. I am Ben Shank. Today with me, I have Ronnie Dixon. Ronnie is a prosthetist by day and a professional boulderer by night. In 2005, at the age of 17, Ronnie lost his leg above the knee because of a congenital disorder called Trevor's disease. After his amputation, he found the sport of climbing and never looked back. Since then, Ronnie has been at the forefront of the disabled climbing movement, competing in competitions around the world and aspiring to be the first above-the-knee amputee to climb the V10 difficulty, which, Ronnie, is about 10 levels harder than anything I can do. Ronnie Dixon, welcome to Mountain Meister. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. The listeners heard me say there during that little bio that you have what's called Trevor's disease, and I wasn't familiar with it until I started researching a little bit. Just tell our listeners a little bit about what Trevor's disease is when you encountered it, and then we can go from there. Okay, perfect. Well, um, Trevor's disease uh, was a developmental disorder in uh, in my growth plates. And for my case specifically, it was in my left knee and my left ankle. Um, so we found out at about the age of five that uh, that was something that I had. Um, it didn't really affect you know, too much of my physical activity until I was about 10 when my leg was significantly shorter than my right leg. And so I had to have a series of leg lengthening procedures done uh, to catch my left leg back up to my right. How is a leg lengthened? Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's the kind <laughs> of gnarly part to the whole entire thing. They actually break uh, your tibia and fibula, which are the two bones in your lower leg, and they insert basically pins into different portions of that bone that are attached to a halo, one at the top end and one at the bottom end. And uh, 
via that fixture, they're able to lengthen it, you know, about a millimeter or so every day until finally they've gotten the desired length that they want to get. So in my case, I, I needed to lengthen my leg six inches. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. And then whenever it's all said and done, you just kind of wait for the bone to grow back in the middle. And whenever that grows back, uh, uh, you can take the device off, get a cast on, and once the bone is totally healed, you kind of proceed onwards from there. Wow. How, how long does that take? Um, when I was 10, I was in and out of the hospital for the better part of a year. Wow. I I missed the majority of third grade, um, while I was in the hospital, but thankfully, you know, believe it or not, something that seems negative like that, um, I was taken care of over at the Shriners Hospital in Tampa, Florida, and I have nothing but really positive memories from there. Uh, you know, just playing video games, hanging out with friends, uh, you know, those kind of things, um. Yeah, so what otherwise could have been, you know, maybe a bad time in my life, I I still look back on with pretty good memories. And so, okay, so that was 10 years old, and you didn't get your leg amputated until 17. So what were those next seven years like? Sure, so the next seven years um, were where, you know, we kind of started to see the full effect that the you know disease uh, would have would have on me so you know things were good especially after that leg lengthening procedure I went back to being active you know playing basketball being on swim team you know just in general hanging out with my friends and doing kids stuff but um, when I was 14 uh, the sport that I really loved to play was soccer and it, it just got to the point where I would be coming home from practice and and I would be in a lot of pain and I wouldn't really be able to walk until the next day when I would you know, wake up in the morning to go to school. Um, you know, so that recovery time was starting to get, you know, more and more progressive. And then, you know, as I inched closer and closer to 17, uh, my knee wouldn't bend anymore. My ankle was kind of fused in a tiptoe position. My leg was short again. So it just started to become obvious, uh, you know, especially given the first leg lengthening procedure that I could have, you know, a whole bunch of surgeries to try to make you know, make something that was never going to be truly fixed okay, or I could just have one surgery to go ahead and just take the whole entire thing off and continue on with my life. Uh, so it actually, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, was it a hard decision? Was it difficult? Uh, you know, but I think for somebody who's always kind of lived looking one direction and that's forward, um, it was the pretty obvious decision to make at that point, especially after three pretty hard years with it. Um, so I graduated high school, uh, immediately after had my leg amputated and, uh, yeah, my life has been amazing ever since. It's been great. Normally that sentence goes, I graduated high school, traveled in Europe and then my life was great <laughs> after that. Not, I had my leg amputated. Wow. What an interesting time in your life. They say we, as men stop really growing at around what, like 22, 23, hmm. Would you have encountered problems at 22, 23 after you stopped growing? Yeah, with the, with the Trevor's disease, it was just something that was never going to quite work itself out. Uh, I'd mentioned those bone tumors that started growing, uh, the one that started to limit the, the amount of range of motion I had in my knee. And that was just so intertwined with all the blood vessels and all the nerves and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have been a pretty messy procedure just to go ahead and cut that out. Um so, yeah, yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, and, and there's no telling, you know, especially like you mentioned, you know, we don't stop growing until we're about 22, 23. It was the growth that was starting to to become an issue at this point. Um, 
you know, at first from lack of it, and then at the end from too much just abnormal bone growth, you know, it's very, very possible that what we would have taken all that time to cut out would have just come right back. Yeah. You had a choice with this, though, and a lot of people don't have a choice to get their leg amputated. Do you, do you think that you have a different outlook than other people who maybe didn't have a choice? Definitely. Um, you know, it's just so much of a different scenario. You know, uh, you imagine one scenario, you're, you're riding in your car or you're on a motorcycle and then, you know, something happens uh, and you wake up in the hospital two days later and your leg's gone. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's a huge shock as compared to here. You know, I, I've got, you know, quite a bit of time to get comfortable and used to the idea on the front end and then a perfect kind of interme- intermediate period in my life to to get used to it, you know, before I continued, uh, uh, you know, to move forwards, um, you know, whereas the other ones just this kind of huge, you know, throws a wrench in all any plans that you had pretty immediately. Humans are really, really scared of regret. Um, I've learned this from a few psychologists that the, the fear drives so many decisions that we make. Um, and I think that's why a lot of us have trouble taking risks because risks are uncomfortable and we're scared that down the road, we're going to look back and say, wow, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. Are you scared that at some point you're going to look back and say, wow, I regret that decision or is that never come into your head? No, no, it's never, it's, Mm -hmm. it's never even for one second, uh, come into my head one bit. Um, you know, I think that's what, what my parents were most worried about. Uh, you know, with me being so young, having mm-hmm. to make such a big decision. But, uh, you know, honestly, you know, kind of like I said before, I've always just looked one direction and that's forward. Um, I've never really looked back ever since. Uh, you know, I've had a few retrospectives here and there, but yeah, it's always been more of a, wow, you know, that was, that would have been a disaster if I tried to keep that. And, and it, by jumping headfirst into the amputation, it, it's brought so many positive things into my life that I could have never, ever imagined having, um, you know, experiences, people, you know, my current employment, you know, what I do as a career. Uh, so it really kind of set me on a path of its own, whereas I think I'd just be honestly really unhappy and, you know, definitely not had as much clear direction, you know, had I chosen to keep my leg. Absolutely. And you've had so much success since then. You're now one of the best rock climbers in the world among amputees with that recent trip to Spain. Just briefly, tell our listeners, you were telling me a little bit before the interview about Spain and the growth that disabled rock climbing has seen in the past few years. It's been incredible, you know, especially to be a part of it at this stage in the game. Um, You know, internationally, we're going from a point where, you know, we have a a world championships every two years now. So at the 2012 world championships in in Paris, uh, we had 62 athletes, I think, representing 20 plus countries there. And now at this 2014 um, World Championships that we just recently concluded, uh, we had probably hovering right around 90 athletes representing, uh, you know, close to 40 different countries. Um, You know, so climbing is one of those sports that's, I think, interesting for people with disabilities just simply because everybody, you know, whether you have all four of your limbs or whether you have three uh, or whether you're dealing with one thing versus another, you have to learn how your own body climbs and you know, work around that. Uh, so I think it's a really, really great and challenging sport for people to get back into because there's so many different ways a, a sequence or a route can be done 
you know, you're not kind of just kept inside of one box, which is awesome. For our listeners, we had Craig DiMartino on Mountain Meister for episode number three, uh, way back, a throwback episode. Check, <laughs> check that out if you want to hear Craig talk a little bit about how he actually climbs. And we're going to briefly touch on that too here, Ronnie. The thing which I found so impressive when we talked to Craig was that he, with his with his prosthetic leg has become almost a visual learner while he rock climbs and he can see a, a little ledge on the rock and that's maybe a nickel wide and know that he can put X weight on it or he sees something a dime wide and knows that he, the prosthetic will hold Y weight. Have you discovered something similar to that? Yeah, it's it's definitely a very visual thing, you know, because essentially you're putting weight through a, a mechanical device at this point. Um, so absolutely, you know, you spot something, you know, you experiment with different positions, and I say, okay, I know if I put my body weight into this particular hold, uh, you know, one way that it's definitely going to hold me, or or I know when I'm going through the sequence, you know, this is my best foothold, but that I should definitely, you know, maybe only apply like thirty or forty percent pressure to this foot because you know any anything past that it might blow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely more calculated up front, whereas I think. Uh, Normally, through like a climbing se- sequence, you're feeling it as you're going through the movement. But since there's that lack of feel, you're kind of adjusting for it all on the front end. And then as you're moving through your movement, you've already made those calculations on what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess w- what I didn't ask earlier is, do you ever climb without the prosthetic leg? It was a really interesting um, transition for me. My first year and a half, I would say... Uh, because of lack of any specialized equipment um, and just simply just ease in general, I started climbing without my prosthesis. Uh, so the very first time I went to the climbing gym, the very first thing I did was take it off because I knew it was going to be uh, problematic uh, the way that I was using it. Um, you know, and just kind of went uh, for that real straightforward approach towards rock climbing. And uh, yeah, okay, where are the hands? And you know, where's the one foot that I can use to help you know help move myself up up the wall? Um, so I climbed like that for about a year and a half and. Through that whole entire time, you know, naturally, you know, climbing with one leg, I got really, really strong in my upper body, but I started getting to points in my climbing where I'd be working on some of the same routes as uh, other people who, who maybe I felt like I was a little bit stronger than, but not able to make it through some of the easier sequences. And, and that's kind of where I had a light bulb go off in my head uh, where, you know, something's just not adding up here at the time i didn't know exactly what that was but you know a little bit down the road through the help of a couple nonprofits, uh, paradox sports challenge athletes foundation i managed to get some specialized climbing equipment and it was only of course after the fact with hindsight that i was like wow you know all of this is really starting to add up and make sense you know the different balance point between just climbing with one leg as opposed to two um you know even on things where i have a right foot so i'm like okay i have a right foot i should be able to do this move sometimes the amount of core tension that you have to build um or hold through your movement is a little bit more intricate than just what what seems very simple on the surface uh so yeah definitely in hindsight i started to discover um you know some of what i was feeling when i just climb with one leg and now honestly i'd say for 95% of the the climbs that i do i keep my leg on absolutely okay yeah yeah and i find bouldering so impressive and that's mainly what you focus on bouldering uh, first of all i don't understand how athletes can launch off of 
the rock and kind of go for a hold. So, for example, if you're standing straight up and down, you wouldn't be able to reach this hold. You would you have to jump to get it, and you have to jump off of one leg, basically, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. There are some videos <laughs> out there. I'll post a video on your Meister profile page, Ronnie, and our listeners can see it. Very, awesome. very impressive. Now, by day, Ronnie, you are a prosthetist. I guess did I say that correctly? Uh, prosthetist, yeah. Prosthetist. Okay, you learn something new every day, I guess. Yeah. By day, Ronnie, you are a prosthetist. You make legs for people for a living, which is quite fitting. You're the perfect man for the job. Uh, we recently had Melissa Stockwell on the show, uh, episode number seventy-six for our listeners. If you'd like to check out that, we talked about. Um, she's also above the leg amputee, and we talked about the technology and prosthetist. And I was blown away, Ronnie, blown away. I had no idea that there was so much technology. Uh, and it's also advancing very rapidly. So tell us what your job is kind of on a daily basis. Sure. So my job as a prosthetist is essentially, you know, working with patients, you know, fitting and fabricating the prosthetic device and, and you know, aligning the device for that person. You know, all of our bodies are set up a little bit differently so making sure that the knee and the foot are working in unison with the prosthetic socket that fits on the on the individual's leg, you know, just making sure that they're comfortable, you know, able to go about their daily activities, you know, and then on that other level too, taking it a step further, uh, you know, getting them back into their sports and their recreation, making sure that that they're not losing anything in their quality of life. You know, we want to bring that back on an even uh, even keel with what it was before. Absolutely. And it seems, I mean, it's a very intricate piece of technology. Are prosthetics expensive? Yeah, yeah, they're pretty expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, the knee that I'm wearing right now, the prosthetic knee, uh, with what it, it, it retails for, um, it probably cost as much as I would say like a Mercedes or a BMW or something wow. like that. Wow, okay. Is it a problem that these are very expensive? Is there an effort to try to produce less expensive legs? Yeah, you know, it, it's there's there's a bunch of different ranges where where you have equipment available. So, you know, with mechanic and, and hydraulic legs, you know, let's just speak about the knee joint just to make this conversation a little bit more simple. Yeah. Um, you know, you could probably enter in like right around five to ten thousand um, dollars. You know, get a, get a pretty good product, but it's not going to be controlled with a microprocessor unit. So. Going up a scale now, what those microprocessors do is they're they are actively controlling the hydraulic fluid in the knee, so it's affecting how the knee swings uh, at a consistent mm -hmm. rate. Um, you know, whenever somebody is going to go downstairs, what the microprocessor does is it stiffens up the hydraulic fluid so that that person can walk downstairs step over step, um, and and you know just basically so that the knee joint is fluid during uh, you know all the different phases of their gait, and that's kind of the next tier. What I would you know go ahead and call for this conversation the mid-tier. Mm -hmm. And now what's happening is we're, we're a step past that. I mean, that was the standard for the past 20 years, to, to have a microprocessor-controlled hydraulic unit. But now the knees are coming out with accelerometers, with gyroscopes, you know, so they know where they are in space. Um, you know, they know the velocity at which its user is, is going, uh, and it's adjusting the hydraulic fluid accordingly so that you're always getting a, a smooth, consistent amount of heel rise. Um, you know, whether you're doing the movie theater shuffle and the movie theater line, or if you're running to, um, you know, catch the next bus or something like that. And, you know, those are the units that, because of all the integrated technology, uh, are, you know, becoming quite expensive. Mm -hmm. 
and I'd say that's mainly what's been driving the cost up. But there definitely are levels, you know, where you can get in, you know, get into the game a little bit, uh, a little bit less expensive for sure. Right, right. I'm I'm curious as we talk about this, how how do you view your your prosthetic like do you do you see this as a piece of equipment or is it more intimate than that i guess it's it's definitely i'd say my relationship with my prosthetic leg is a little bit more intimate in the sense that i put it on in the morning and i really don't think at all about it until i take it off at night like it's as much a part of me as um you know as my other leg was Uh, um you know and it's definitely you know in terms of functionality a lot more functional than you know, than I ever was before, um, because of some of the other challenges that I was, that I was dealing with. Uh, you know, so from that sense, yeah, I mean, I wear it, I feel it like it's just mine. Um, and I've gotten comfortable enough with it to where I know exactly what to expect from it. So I'd say that's, that's been my personal experience. Mm-hmm. And, and all this, I, I don't want this to sound obnoxious, but all, as we talk about this advance in technology, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before or thought about it, at what point are these? Uh, is a prosthetic leg going to be uh, more advanced than a human leg? I mean, in some respects, it already is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see where that you know where that line kind of comes up. We've already started kind of dabbling in into those realms. You know, we've had you know bionic technology come out where you have ankles now that are rep- replicating the function of the gastroc muscle and the soleus muscle. So essentially, providing that you know that powered push whenever you're pressing down with your toe, you know, so think of what you would do, you know, at the end of your uh, gait or to jump up and down, you know, what your calf muscle does. We have Mm -hmm. prosthetic ankles that are doing that now, you know, and we have prosthetic knees that are actually powering people upstairs. But, you know, that being said, when it comes to bionic, you know, motorized prosthetic equipment, that's actually giving, you know, returning tangible energy. Uh, you know, you do run into challenges like battery, big batteries, battery life, uh, the weight of the device. So we're definitely going into that realm where they're actually starting to very, very much so give some of that function back. But it's not yet at a level that's, I would say, feasible um, for mass mass use. You yeah. know, it, it hasn't become the standard yet. Uh, and I think, you know, be until the weight of some of those uh, devices comes down, um, you know, and then also, too, until we get to the point where we're not having to change out batteries every five hours, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're probably still maybe, you know, another five, ten years away between totally jumping into that, uh, you know, that realm. Well, so as we continue this discussion on equipment and technology, we'd like to get a gear recommendation from all of our guests and you can recommend a type of prosthetic leg if you'd like, but I'm not sure how many of our listeners are actually in the market. <laughs> so anyway, let's hear a gear recommendation. <laughs> I guess I'll start it out by saying that I live in Orlando, Florida, mm-hmm. so it's not exactly a climber's paradise. Um, but I will say that what we do have close, you know, at a nice little nine-hour drive is the <laughs> crags of, uh, you know, right in the region of Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know, one of my favorite crags being uh, Little Rock City, uh, otherwise now known as the Stone Ford. And I'd say probably one of my favorite pieces of gear because there's so many boulders, you know, so quickly, uh, you know, so condensed, you know, one right near the other. I think in a quarter mile stretch, you probably have about 600 to 700 just absolutely world-class boulder problems. Wow. So I'd say my gear recommendation is the Evolve uh, Ringer crash pad and uh, the Wingman crash pad. And Essentially, what those are are two little drag pads. So they're not full pads at all, 
but I love going up there, and I've done a lot of these climbs so many different times now to where I feel very comfortable just doing them padless. But I still don't want to, you know, I still want to have at least a little bit, little bit of protection, and then at the same time to uh, keep my shoes clean, uh, you know, as I move around the circuit and things like that. So th- with those two pieces of gear, you know, I can go. Uh, totally hammer out my warm-up without even unpacking my main pad. Very cool. We will throw both of those on your Meister profile page for our listeners. You can check out that on our website. To close the conversation, Ronnie, I like to ask this question to a lot of our uh, guests because I think it, it evokes different answers from different people. So you inspire a lot of people out there. I think that's pretty evident. You have You have a reason to complain and make excuses, but you don't, you won't. And that's awesome. And it's a lesson to all of us, really. I'm curious if you inspire us, who out there inspires you? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a great, always a thought-provoking question. Um, it, it's always kind of one of those things that's that's developing for me because my my source of inspiration isn't necessarily one that's fixed. You know, there's definitely people who I always associate with inspiration, but it's, it's constantly changing and it's very dynamic just kind of based on what, you know, what's going on in my life at the time. Um, you know, so I could say from my past, you know, I could easily bring up my grandfather. Uh, he had a a back injury and always dealt with a lot of pain. And I think that's where I get some of my attitude from is him because I can remember you could tell he was in pain, but he would never, ever complain about it or, bring that burden onto anybody else, which I always really admired him for. You know, I'd say there's my mom, you know, for kind of bring, you know, instilling in me that never, you know, never give up attitude, you know, and then lately that changes on a weekly basis is just working with some of our patients here at our clinic that, uh, you know, are getting up and walking for the first time or maybe running for the first time, you know, just kind of feeding off some of that energy, kind of taking my inspiration from the now too at the same time. Awesome. Yeah, very rewarding job you must have. Yeah, it's great. I I love it. Um, I I honestly, you know, I've had dreams, you know, much like every climber of living the dream and living out of a van or something like that and going climbing, uh, you know, all across the country. But, you know, I think having that extra stability, that extra little piece in my life, you know, helps keep me balanced in a positive way, you know, and it gives me just something tangible that, when I'm not climbing that I can put my energy and focus into. Ronnie, thanks so much for joining us today on Mountain Meister. For our listeners, Ronnie does work with Paradox Sports and the Challenged Athletes Foundation, who, Ronnie, I will be running a marathon for in this coming November. That's cool. That's awesome. (laughs) To find out more, check out Ronnie's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Ronnie, awesome having you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Cool. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, cool story there by Ronnie Dixon, episode 79, The Only Way to Look is Forward. Thank you for listening. If that got you in the mood for climbing, we've got a ton of other climbing episodes. Check them out. Our website, mtnmeister, mountainmeister.com. We've got pictures of every single Meister on there. You'll be able to tell which ones are the climbers. Don't worry. As usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. I and Ben Shank and you have been listening 
to Mountain Meister. Thank you.